Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. The biggest selling book of all time is the Bible, yet so many people give up reading it, even lots of people within the Christian community. If you don't have much of an idea about how or where to begin, if you don't have someone to guide you, it can be an intimidating and daunting thing. Right now, the Bible Society of Australia is attempting to reverse that trend with its Live Light in 25 Words campaign, well worth joining. And here's what I think is another really helpful offering. Hal Seed has written a book called The Bible Questions to both help people begin to study the Bible and apply it to their lives. And Hal joins us now on Open House. Hal, welcome. Thank you, Lee. It's a delight to be with you. Thanks very much for joining us, Hal. It's a challenge, I think, to get people reading anything today in this age of texts and tweets, let alone something so complex as the Bible, Hal. I agree completely. We have so many distractions in this world that draw us away. Plus, the devil would rather we did anything than read God's Word. Hal, what's the research show about uh, if or how people are reading the Bible in 2012? What I'm seeing here is a group called the Barna Research Group identified that just about 34% of church-going American Christians read the Bible regularly, uh, daily or so, and about 17% read it once a week or so, so less than 50% of churchgoers. The interesting thing, at least in our country, and I think our two countries are very similar, so my yes. guess it was a few similar, 85% of Americans on this recent survey said they wished they read the Bible more, and that's not just churchgoers, that's all Americans. We have this sense the Bible is the best book to be reading, but as you said, we're so distracted by so many other things that uh, it's difficult to get people to sit down and give attention for 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. And you have to acknowledge that it is a daunting and complex thing to approach without a lot of knowledge about how to approach it. Yeah, well, and I confess that I'm relying completely on the Holy Spirit to prompt people. I just put some words on a page in hopes that people would read it and say, wow, I want to read this book, not my book, but the Bible. The reason I wrote the book was to get people to read the Bible. What got you thinking, you in particular, about writing a book like this, Hal? Well, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called The God Questions, because I pastor a church that's now 20 years old, and every two years I did a series where I would say to the people in the church, hey, if you have any questions about God, or if you have friends who do, write them down, and over the next six weeks we'll answer them all. And so I uh, found out everyone has questions about God, and they're all seeking answers. Unfortunately, almost all the questions people have about God are answerable. So then when I turned that same kind of focused attention to the Bible, I realized everyone has questions about the Bible, and all the questions are, are answerable. So I, I don't know that I can answer them all, but I did, a, did my best shot at answering the major ones and pointing people towards resources that would answer the minute questions like, uh, where did Cain get his wife, and, you know, could miracles really happen, and all that sort of stuff. I, I, I point them to resources for that. My goal in writing the book wasn't to answer all the Bible questions, but, but to give people a thirst for reading the Bible. And uh, so far it's working at least with the people I've talked to. Is this one of the challenges for people in the Christian community or entering the Christian community or even being a spectator of the Christian community? <laughs> so many of the experts like ministers and pastors have so much assumed knowledge that everyone will just know about mm. the Bible, and less and less they do today. Yeah, that's true. Bible knowledge is going down. I think that the real challenge comes from two places. One is our own flesh. 
we know intuitively if I'm going to read the Bible, it's going to improve me. And I want that on the one hand, but on the other hand, improvement is a bit painful. So maybe if I don't read the Bible today, there will be no stress on me, which is kind of a ridiculous, illogical logic, isn't it? Yeah. But then I think that the major reason we're put off uh, from right, reading the Bible is you sit down in your chair and you say, I'm going to read the Bible. And all of a sudden, ten things happen that you didn't anticipate. You, uh, your child starts screaming, or you realize that you've got to use the bathroom, or, or the picture on the wall is tilted, and you never <laughs> noticed it before, but it's bugging you now, or the mirror needs dusting. And, and I think that that's the devil uh, doing... He knows the power of God's Word is so profound that he will do anything to keep us from reading the Bible. So if you've got your flesh and the devil both warring against you, but... I can say this. My experience is when someone says, you know, I could spend three minutes on this, because three minutes is better than no minutes, the minute you sit down and say, Lord, speak to me, I'm listening, when you, you read your first three sentences in the book, the Bible, and, and you go, I want more of this, I want more of this, the minute you allow yourself to connect with God in that way, it's like water to your soul. So I think the trick to reading the Bible is to read the Bible, sit down, and you'll be glad you did, and... 20 minutes will go by, and you think those were the best 20 minutes of my entire day. Hal, how would you say the Bible has practically impacted in your own life? Well, uh, the broad general would be in every way, but on a practical basis, uh, Paul says in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what the Bible does for not just me, but for everyone. Uh, you know, we, we're exposed to, I read the statistic a while ago, uh, something like 5,000 messages a day from the Internet and the billboards and the magazines and the radio that we listen to and all of that. And all of those are about what's good for me. Buy me, try me, taste me, wear me, put me in your hair. You know, modern advertising <laughs> is designed to turn us into consumers. Yeah. But God says we ought to be contributors. We ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ought to care for the poor. We ought to... We ought to think more highly of others than ourselves, which are counterintuitive. And, and so the, one of the primary purposes of the Bible, and what it's done for me, is it helps me to think like God, like, like Jesus, about others, and have a, a better heart for that. Uh, but the trick is, because I'm getting all these other messages all day, I can't just read a little bit today. I have to le- read some of it every day to do what Ephesians says, be washed by the Word. In fact, the word be transformed in the original Greek language doesn't mean be transformed and then you're done. It means be transformed continually, perpetually, ongoing. So I need to let the Bible read me every day so that I'm washed and renewed and refreshed and I get those crummy messages of you deserve a break today, you're the center of the universe, everyone should wait on you out of my mind and become other-centered and think God's thoughts after him. I have a long ways to go, but my short answer to your question is, the Bible has made me a better person, little by little by little, by transforming my mind. Yes, this is what you mean in your introduction. You say the Bible can make us better people. Yeah, and the other piece of it is, so in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all Scripture is inspired, is God-breathed, and it's profitable for four things, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that we can be equipped for every good work. So I call that the Second Timothy Road. The Bible is profitable for teaching. It teaches me how to live. Elsewhere in Psalm 119 it says, it's a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. It teaches me the road. But inevitably, because I'm a finite and sinful human, 
I'm going to get off the road. So then the Bible rebukes me. It says, how? You're off the road. And then it corrects me, and it says, and here's how to get back on the road. And then it trains me in righteousness. Here's how to stay on the road. So that's what the Bible does for me. It guides my life if I will let it. Okay, so what are the most common Bible questions we have, and what are some of the answers, Hal? So the Bible questions book itself is actually 20 short chapters, each with a a practical application of read these three or four verses and answer these couple verses. Again, it's designed to addict you to reading the Bible, to entice you to do that. And, And so I kind of lined them up, 20 different questions. Who wrote the Bible? How is the Bible different from other books? Who decided what went into the Bible? How accurate is it? Did God really write the Bible? Those are the first five. So who wrote the Bible? Well, that's an interesting question, because on one level, the Bible claims to be written by God, and I would certainly affirm that, and most people who read it go, yeah, this bears the marks that God wrote it. But from a human level, there were a little over 40 authors of the 66 books. The the unique thing about the Bible, it's a book of books. It's not just one book. It's 66 books written over a 1,500-year period of time by 40-plus authors, in three different languages, from three different continents, in ten different countries, in different walks of life, from a king to a poet to a peasant to an artist, uh, statesman, warriors, and they were in different moods. And then the real interesting part about that is that uh, the Bible has one theme, one central message throughout the entire thing with consistency and not contradicting, even though it has all this diversity in contributing to it. So who wrote the Bible? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, people like that. Most of them have their names to it, and I, I address those in the first chapter. But, but they were written under the inspiration, the instrumentality of God Almighty, and uh, even had the words preserved that way. The second question is, so how is the Bible different from all other books? And I've given you some of that. It's 66 books in one. Uh, interesting things are that the Bible was the first book translated into another language, In 250 B.C., uh, a number of Jews had moved out of Israel, and so they began speaking the Greek language, which was the trade language of the time. So some some, uh, Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. We still have that translation today. It's called the Septuagint, first book translated into a foreign language. It was the first book printed on a printing press, a German by the name of Johann Gutenberg, uh, printed the Bible and made a lot of money doing it after he invented the printing press. It's the first book projected by a telegram. It was uh, the RSV of the, the Bible Revised Standard Version was telegraphed from England to the United States, the entire book in, in one night after it was printed. Uh, it's the first book in outer space. It was the first book on the moon. Um, a lot of uniquenesses to it, but the most unique part about it is that when you read the Bible... It reads you. It, the Bible says it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating to dividing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. So as I'm reading the Bible, it's saying, yes, you're like that, and that's good, Hal. No, you're not like that. You could be better at that. You can do. It, it, it's a book that interacts with me, convicts me, and lifts me up. When I read the Bible, it reads me. And then the other piece that's really unique about the Bible is, you know, you might be able to read the Lord of the Rings two or three times in your lifetime because it's such compelling narrative. Uh, but apart from that, uh, it's difficult to think of a book or two that you'd want to read even twice. 
whereas people who start reading the Bible find that they never stop reading the Bible. You can read from cover to cover, and at the end of Revelation, you want to go back and start over, or, or you want to read in the middle of the book. Uh, the Bible is a book we, we never finish reading because it's perpetually transforming our mind in deeper and more profound ways. Yes. On Open House, we're with author Hal Seed, who's written this book called The Bible Questions. Hal, one of the most fundamental questions I think we can ask, especially in our pretty cynical age in which we live, is this. Is the Bible something we can trust? Was it translated, was it transmitted with accuracy and credibility? And that is such a good question, Lee, because I think a lot of people have this thought of, well, the Bible is such an ancient book, and it was translated from one language to the next to the next. It's copied over and over, so we really don't know what it says. They're, they have kind of the vision of a game we play here in the States. You probably played it as a kid, too, called Telephone, where yes. you get a room full of kids, and yeah. one whispers to the next one, the duck is brown, and, and he gets that muddled, and the next one gets it more muddled, so that the message goes all the way around the room, and it comes back as Bobby loves Susie. Yes. Well, the the Bible is far from that. Uh, The Bible was written in Hebrew, Old Testament, and six chapters of it in Aramaic, and the New Testament in Greek. And we have reliable copies of those original manuscripts, not the actual manuscripts, but reliable copies from antiquity that just are almost stunning in their accuracy. And the story of the Old Testament is very different than the story of the New Testament and their preservation. For instance... In the New Testament, we, what we find is we have 9,300 ancient copies of cognate languages that, that all have Bible manuscripts in them, like Syriac and, and languages around that. We have 10,000 ancient manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate from 4th century and such like that. But we also have 5,300 copies of Greek manuscripts that are fairly early on. So that's a composite of 24,000 ancient manuscripts from which whenever a translator wants to translate the Bible, they use those. They don't translate from one language to another to another to another. They go back to these manuscripts, they're able to study them all and say, what evidence gives us whatever that this is the most likely word? And there's a whole society, the United Bible Society, it's headed by a German these days, that maintains a library of where every ancient manuscript is located, and they rate it. It's in this museum, and it's a D rating, or it's a C rating, or it's an A rating. So our ability to reconstruct the New Testament is profound. And when you compare that to the next most reliable book of antiquity, that would be Homer's Iliad. We have 24,000 ancient copies of the New Testament, and people question that. But the Iliad is the second most uh, prolific ancient manuscript, and and we have 693 copies of that. Yet nobody disputes that Homer wrote the Iliad or that the Iliad is the story that he wrote. And from there it just goes downhill. So the evidence for the accuracy of the Bible, New Testament, is overwhelming. The Old Testament was treated a little differently because the Old Testament was shepherded by the Jews in their native Hebrew language. And the Jews, like Christians with the New Testament, both groups had a sense, this is sacred writ. This is God's Word, so we're going to treat it sacredly. Now, uh, we just proliferated Greek New Testaments all all over the place, and so that's why you can go to uh, universities and libraries and museums and find these manuscripts all over the world. But the Hebrews, whenever their text started to get tattered or worn or aged, they would, in a very uh, reverent way, destroy the manuscript. So uh, up until 1946, we only had one 
even semi-ancient manuscript of the Hebrew. It's a ninth-century manuscript, and everything else was newer than that. Well, as you probably know, in 1947, a little shepherd boy in Israel threw a rock into a cave near the Dead Sea and heard uh, pottery shatter. Uh, He knew that that meant there was some sort of archaeology there, and that had a potential of some revenue for him, so he crawled into the cave and found this treasure trove of documents that we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Between that and several other caves, they recovered 600 documents that we know were dated about 100 years before Jesus lived. One of those documents, two of those documents actually, are are full manuscripts of the uh, Old Testament book of Isaiah. So now we've got a 100 B.C. copy of the book of Isaiah to compare to our 900 A.D. book of Isaiah. That's a thousand-year copy after copy after copy. And what we find is that 99.5% of that manuscript is absolutely the same. Uh, In the book, I I line out a comparison of Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, uh, there's some vowel changes because, you know, pronunciation changes over time. And there's the word light that's inserted. It's a three-letter word. Of all, there's only 17 letters that are different in all of Isaiah 53, and none of them change meaning. So you look at that and you just gasp and go, from 100 B.C. to 900 A.D., that was the entire change. It's almost like this is a supernatural book that God had interest in preserving. Yeah, it's an important study to make, I think, for anyone approaching and the Bible. So when people get informed, then they back off on their supposed skepticism of the reliability of this scripture, and they begin to go, wow, if that book has all of that credibility behind it, maybe I ought to read this thing. Yes. Hal, one of the great things I think, and I've always thought the Bible's got going for it, is that it's a book of stories, which is the Mm. best way to communicate a message. Something like 70% of the Bible is narrative or story. Yeah. Narrative takes down your your defenses, and it gives you the world in color, or we might say today in high density, uh, it tells the story of God and uh, in pretty compelling terms. So anybody who's heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel and the lion's den, or Moses striking the rock, you remember those over time. I think God had a purpose in that. He, 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 they're able to stay in our mind and do some wonderful things for us. You know, the Bible says in, in um, Philippians that whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, if there's anything excellent and praiseworthy, we ought to think about these things. And the virtue of narrative is it enables us to think about it over and over and over again with some some fairly thrilling adventure behind it, yes. imagining ourselves in that position. What, what if I was facing a nine-foot-tall giant as a 17-year-old boy like David, and I only had five stones? How would I be feeling? What would I be thinking? This would require some faith and and some reliance on God, and, and those lessons can then just kind of ruminate in our brains. Yes. How if you stand back from all the stories, all the genres of the Bible, what do you say is the central message of this large, complex document? Oh, actually, that's an easy answer, but let me give you a, a full one and then come to that. So uh, what most people don't know is that Middle Eastern people always tell stories with a symmetrical structure. If you start with A, then you end with A prime. If you then move to B, you move at the end to B prime. And and the Bible is a completely symmetrical book, which is, again, amazing for a book written by 40-plus authors over 1,500 years. But, But if you start in Genesis, you've got Genesis 1 and 2 that are the creation of the world. 
uh, it, it, you go to the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, and you have the restoration of creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of mankind. Genesis or Revelation 19 and 20 is the restoration of mankind. Uh, the, all the chapters in between are leading up to this culminating event of Jesus coming, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sin, and then resurrecting that we might have new life. So the Bible has this perfect symmetry with its growing climax in the middle and then the ramifications for that climax and how to live for him until God returns. That's, the, that's kind of the format, the overview of the Bible, and really that's part of why I wrote the book was now that you know that, you're going to want to open your Bible and go, so how does Ezekiel contribute to that? Or why are the Psalms... Oh, I get it. Oh, I see. It's all uh, the central theme of the Bible is that God is building a community of people who relate to him by faith and one another in love so that he can bless them and through them bless the world. You can turn to any page in Scripture, and if you understand its context, you go, oh, I see, this is about God building a community. And he's asking them to respond to him by faith. He's asking them to respond to each other in love because he's a blessing God who wants to bless them so that they can bless others. Okay, so there's the broad general context, and I hope everybody goes, wow, I've got to get the book now, because I want to read that, and I want to then read the Bible. But, but the central message of the Bible really is encapsulated in one small story that Jesus told that we know as the prodigal son. Only I think that's a mislabeled story. Jesus didn't call him the prodigal son. The word prodigal means reckless and extravagant. I think there's a reckless and extravagant person in the story, but it's not the son, it's the father. Yes. This is the story of a father who had two sons, and one of them said, in effect, I wish you were dead. Go away. I want, I want all your stuff, and I want none of you. It's a shaming thing that no one in the Middle East would ever imagine having happened to a father, and yet this father has it happened to him. And he doesn't reject the son. He grants his request, and he lets him go off on his own, but he waits at home longing for this son, this wayward son, to return. And the father is so recklessly extravagant. He's the prodigal. It's the prodigal father. He's so recklessly extravagant that when the son comes back, instead of letting the villagers beat the son for having shamed the father with his request that he get his inheritance early, he runs to the son. This is something a Middle Eastern landowner would never do, because to run, you'd have to lift your robe. That would expose your ankles, and that would be humiliating. The father humiliates himself to the entire village by running to the son. And when he gets there, he wraps his arms around him. He kisses him repeatedly. He takes his own signet ring and puts it on the son as if to say, you are fully empowered to make decisions for our family. He takes sandals and puts them on his feet. Uh, slaves were, were barefoot. Sons got sandals. And then he takes the best robe in the family. Bring the best robe. Well, who has the best robe? It's the father's robe. And he puts it on his back. And then he kills the fatted cat, uh, calf, not the fatted goat, not the fatted chicken. He kills the big animal because he wants everyone to party with him and rejoice that this son who was wayward and who walked away from him has been restored and is fully back in the family again. That's the story of the Bible. We're, we're the prodigal son. We're the ones who walked away, if not physically, at least in our hearts, and we rebelled. And the father, with his reckless, extravagant love, waits for us to return, woos us to return, and when we do, he overwhelms us with his love. 
that's the central story of the Bible. It's quite a story. And yeah. I think this uh, book of yours, The Bible Questions, are really helpful way forward in connecting it with a whole range of people. Hal Seed, very much enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining us Thank on Open House. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Thank Lee. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.